can't find my remote. It's really stressing me out. I don't know where it is. Ed has this habit of like putting it in weird places, I think, to taunt me. I think there's a rite of passage uh, for a mostly uh, gentleman and the stages that he goes through in adulthood. And forgetting where one puts the remote is one of the latter stages of growing up. But just prior to that is misplacing it and blaming your child. Uh, Hugh Ferris, I can assure you, I have not mis- I personally have not misplaced the remote. I have a very consistent system where I throw it randomly on the sofa and <laughs> remember that it's there at all times. It's definitely not me. It's definitely my errant three-year-old who will have wandered in, seen something that looked interesting, pressed it a lot, then put it on the fire or thrown it in the bin or attempted to eat it, swapped it with the identical remote in the other room. Or possibly Kate will have forgotten which, which remote goes in which room and it will be in the other room where Kate is currently on a Zoom call like me, but she is not recording it to produce content. Do you just be watch anything for you and keep you abreast of... Could you just tell me what the Spurs score is, please? Just if there's a goal. I will keep you up to date with Spurs. No problem at all. Just prior to uh, blaming your child for misplacing a remote is the complete denial that you would have any responsibility yourself for misplacing that remote. It's the three of the five stages... Wickham have taken a shock lead. The, the uh, problem is now I've put football on, you might not have my undivided attention. That's fine. You, I mean, to be honest, I, I think there's a, there's, there's a market for podcasts in people who are not really paying attention to the podcast they're recording. It has been suggested to us via a listener uh, that we should at some point provide online content, which is streamed at the same time as football, as we whimsically talk about that football uh, whilst whilst it's going on, which I think is an excellent idea. If it wasn't for the fact it would be about the 12th to 14th priority of most people when they are trying to enjoy football. So we'd be what? Commentating, but not on the football. It'd be like chatting. No, like, no, no. We'd be, we'd, be, we'd be whimsically commenting upon the football that we and others are watching in real time to provide an alternative soundtrack to the game unless of course Steve and Chinch are commentating in which case we should shut up and listen to them that would give us the opportunity though to commentate on the game in the manner that we wish we could all of the time but have to remain professional and with a level of decorum I'm, I'm actually this is I'm going to say something that's vaguely serious now I'm slightly surprised no one's tried that, that during lockdown, like that, that to, to recreate that, that sense of watching football with friends which obviously is no longer possible that you could just have, like, just having four people talking complete nonsense who know nothing about the game ruining the experience for you. I'm very be... prepared for this to be a business meeting. <laughs> yeah, well, this is now a business about... meeting. Let's pitch ideas. Mine Let's... is talking nonsense during games to spoil it for other people, to remind them of what watching football is really like. <laughs> if only we had something to deduct the tax from. Exactly. I mean, that's the other reason why we wouldn't do it, because we don't get paid for any of this. And ultimately, there's, there's, there's only so much of our time we can give away for free. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, We Gotta Pray, Stephen Wyeth, just to make it today. The uh, food is, after feeling the need to tell you all about the chicken samosas at the Fusion Deli in uh, West Didsbury, we had a tweet to at Set Piece Money from Nadine Dalton West saying this, guys... Those are the best chicken samosas in the world. Fusion Deli is wonderful, and it's owned by my friend's Uncle Pete. Now, who doesn't have a friend that has an Uncle Pete? The twinkly silver-haired chap who probably served you, says Nadine. Seven months ago, she moved from Lapwing Lane, which is the situation of Fusion Deli in West Isbury, to that there London, and this has warmed my nostalgic heart, she says, just seven months on uh, from uh, living right there. So not only was I right, we have actually got a wide enough 
net to be able to incorporate the uh, friend's niece of a friend. No, I've got, I, can't, I can't work out who Nadine is to Uncle Pete. So there we go, everybody. Get your chicken samosas at the Fusion Deli. And maybe next time I go in, I'll get free chicken samosas as well. You might get his picture on the wall if they do enough <laughs> business. They really are very good. Uh, we should say that uh, Chinch isn't here uh, today um, for uh, reasons that are completely legitimate. And uh, we miss him. And he'll be back next week. Um, so... Stephen, do you know what we're talking about today? I do actually. Or do you want me to play the? Do you want me to actually play the role of Chinch? Play the Chinch, the Chinch dunce role. <laughs> the Chinch role, the backup left back during many of Chinch's long injury layoffs. To be fair, I know what we're talking about because I suggested it, and I'm not convinced Chinch would have added a vast amount <laughs> to this episode. If we, if we timed so this it's pretty fine. well. Yeah. In that case, Stephen, you don't need to play the chinch role because we can explain. As Rory just announced then and announced on Twitter this week, we are playing a game. Uh, there is nothing like doing something at length, which right up until the very end appears completely futile, only for a stunning, universal, more likely hastily arrived at for us, truth to emerge from our silliness. Well... Here is our attempt to do just that, as we consider what a World Cup might look like if a breakaway European Super League led to FIFA banning those players involved from taking part in their international competitions, as they indeed threatened to do just in this past week. It has required an extraordinary amount of preparatory work, and in a much earlier than expected twist in today's programme, Rory has done that work. It is um, four years in. I've done some research. Done some research. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast setpiece menu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. Did you like my research font? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't instantly recognise it. So, oh, will you please on. reveal what the font? Got is? a research. I don't know which one. It's just whichever, whichever, whatever my pages is set to. Does the NYC doesn't supply us with with computers that have got Word on them anymore? Um, I, thought the, I thought the typeface was a bit small. It was that's my research typeface. I, I do research in smaller smaller typeface so that I know that it's research and not to be published. It's coming up as Helvetica Neuer. Neuer. Yeah, it's a good font. Um, that or Calibri. I'm a big Calibri man. Always have been. Since birth. Got a straff. Optima fan, me. Optima fan. What? What's Optima? <laughs> well, exactly. If you don't know, then you just come on. Haven't got that. And you know, I had a lot of fun on Saturday. I, I spent my a really fun Saturday night doing it and I like genuinely enjoyed it. As Kate watched Bridgerton. I'm glad that Rory now knows what it's like to be a football commentator, though. Yeah, he'd done a little load of work. To and I didn't even have to learn how to pronounce their names. Long hours at strange times of the day, researching stuff of which 10% might be useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When am, I, when, when am I ever going to talk about Gabrielle Menino apart from now? Now, we've heard before on the podcast from Tim Stillman, uh, he makes a contribution in response to last week's pod on the continuing uh, football behind closed doors uh, that cannot be ignored and is excellent. And he says this, really enjoyed episode 214 on behind closed doors football and the impact it has had. It was an excellent summary of how the product has changed and in many ways, not really changed at all in the last 10 months. Shortly after listening to your podcast, I read an interview with Arsenal women midfielder Leah Velty. She talked about the difficulties she has found in motivating herself this season because COVID protocols on training grounds have had an impact on player camaraderie. Carpools to training are forbidden. Players cannot eat together on the training ground. Instead, they take food home. They don't even get ready for training together in the changing room as they would ordinarily. Leah said that these are usually valuable rituals in building team spirit but with covid protocols limiting contact between teammates she admitted she had found it difficult to motivate herself and this is an angle that has gone widely unconsidered 
As it happens, I interviewed another former Arsenal women player, says Tim, Louise Quinn, last week, uh, who moved to Fiorentina last summer. She talked about how difficult it had been to get to know her new teammates, given that socialising with them has been largely forbidden since she arrived, and she hasn't been able to build a rapport with supporters either. She also talks about how her family hasn't been able to come visit her in Florence, which has also proved challenging. It made me think about Chelsea, uh, and this was prior, obviously, sent in prior to Frank Lampard sacking, who have brought in a number of new overseas players during the summer because it was economically advantageous for them to do so. But this is also probably the worst time to try and integrate new signings. They have limited opportunities to get to know their teammates on a personal level or the foreign cities to where they have now moved, which must make acclimatizing to a new club, country and league much more difficult than usual. There are definitely lots of physical reasons why this compressed season is throwing up some strange results, but I know I hadn't really considered some of these more intangible impacts on teams and players during this period. Keep up the great work. That's from Tim. I heard a, a male player who, who I forget exactly who it was talking about exactly that same thing, that, that there was no team spirit in their squad because the players hadn't actually been able to spend any time together. And I think at a certain level, that probably holds. In the absolute elite, I don't know how much time they're spending with each other anyway, to be honest, away from the pitch uh, or away from the training ground. So it may not explain kind of why, I don't know, why Bayern wins the Champions League and, you know, Real Madrid don't. I'm, I don't think that will be down to the fact they've not, you know, Real's players didn't on a bowling night. But I think probably lower down the leads and... And in women's football, where where the, I guess the usual camaraderie is is probably greater, just as the resources are, are smaller, um, it might be more of an impact. In terms of the cities, I doubt it. To be honest, I think that Timo Werner's experience of lockdown in Leipzig and lockdown in London have, have probably eased it because it'll feel exactly the same to him, both in the sense that every day is exactly the same for everybody at the moment, and there's no chance to you know there's no chance to go outside in either situation. They're in their bubbles. They have to be. So I'm not sure about that one, but I, yeah, I think to, an, to a certain extent, the fact that they've not been able to get to know each other is probably a problem. And whilst it's interesting to, to hear those accounts of current and former Arsenal women's players, everybody is dealing with their own struggles within their own set of circumstances during this pandemic. And of course, footballers who are currently active are getting to interact with their peers considerably more than most people are doing. Yes, the circumstances for them may be reduced significantly beyond what they are used to, but there are there are many more people who would... I'm sure love to have that, not just regular interaction with, with people that they know and one assumes more often than not like, but that opportunity to, to do something active, to get exercise for that, the camaraderie that comes with sport one way or another. Sounds very much like the opinion of a locked down homeschooler there. It's inflected that uh, last contribution from Stephen. Uh, Andrew Hopper Davis has written in response to our Leeds episode from a couple of weeks back. Dear Harry, Ron, Hermione and Neville. And Chinch is not here to complain. Chinch is definitely Neville. Is Neville Longbottom. Uh, Actually, literally, that sounds about right. I've told you previously how great your podcast is, so let's not overdo it, says Andrew. Listening to your uh, revisitation of the Leeds and Karen Carney debacle and hearing what the sensible Leeds supporter wrote in his letter following that, I felt that I would wade in, specifically with the lazy punditry comments. 
I have to concur. I have worked in football and I'm currently studying a master's in football coaching. And we had this same discussion just minutes before I listened to the pod. I think lazy punditry slash reporting has long dictated the narrative in football and is a direct reflection of our societal position. Britain as a society is conformist. And this is also reflective in most English football. As a result, Ideas, he says in inverted commas, are always questioned in our football reporting. This isn't unique to Marcelo Bielsa in Leeds. He is just the latest in a long line of coaches, but I believe that he, like those before him, will quietly dispel the myths that are aimed at him. Reporting in hindsight regularly praises how Wenger, Guardiola and Klopp, for example, have all been so successful. But football media, mostly the sensationalist main ones, he says, rarely takes a second to reflect and try to improve. This is why in 2020 we're having the players will burn out argument, even though this has clearly been shown to be utter nonsense. Anyone with a sports science degree will be able to give a brief explanation of periodization and how you need to complete a process before you can judge it. Klopp, someone with a sports science degree, was routinely criticised in his early Liverpool days that the players couldn't keep that intensity up for the season. And in the short term, the see I told you so crowd were quick to point it out in the first season. But they go strangely quiet and never appear to reflect that they got it wrong. I don't want to give away the ending, but Liverpool continued that process. Players got fitter and lasted longer into the season. And with strong recruitment, it went quite well. My laboured point is simply that Many of the main pundits say things that are not thought out and have limited research to back it up. As Chinch said, a Bielsa team is the sort of thing that pundits should relish to explain. But unfortunately, many of the main faces in football got there on playing ability and not on any level of studying and understanding why, not what, is happening. The common fan who doesn't want to understand why it is happening jumps on it and it becomes the narrative. Ideas are bad because this is how we do football here, because this is how we did football when I played. All the best from Andrew Hopper Davis, which I include because Chinch isn't here, because otherwise we'd just be saying, yes, but there's always Chinch. The thing is that it's the medium doesn't doesn't lend itself to you see this criticism quite a lot, and it's directed at to, to some extent at at television pundits and to, to some extent at journalists and you kind of see it in kind of the analytics community who say that there's not enough analytical content in match reports or you'll see it in people say you know that you know there hasn't been the the requisite level of research into yeah periodization methods in 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 the German pressing school and it's it's kind of I don't want to sound like a like a like a Luddite or a Philistine but it's kind of right on a macro level because yes, in a kind of as a kind of platonic ideal of punditry or journalism, you would have the full gamut of facts at your disposal. But in the moment, I think it's unreasonable to expect. Chinch probably wouldn't agree with this, but I think it's unre- basically unreasonable to expect a pundit to be able to say in a in a thirty forty second soundbite, this piece of research says this, this piece of research says that, this piece of research says the other. And therefore, this is the correct conclusion. I, it's really hard being a pundit on television or on the radio. It's really hard to do that when you. It, and I mean, it's not. And that's not me saying it's hard for me. Does it, I don't do that. I've never done that sort of punditry. None of us have. But where you have to kind of think about what Chinch does, where you have to kind of analyse a piece of footage on the first, basically from what you've seen, then the then what the first replay as you're watching it, it's really difficult. And I, I agree broadly that that more effort could be made. And I think everybody within the media could be more alert to the danger of kind of knee-jerk, like, I reckon culture, I reckon this is the case, so therefore I'll just say that and see what happens. But I think there are limits because of the medium. And we do, you know, that's where the other facet of the media, which is kind of 
the ability to to look at things in depth in whatever you know whether that's a, an in-depth interview or a, a feature in a, in a news outlet or a magazine or whatever it might be that that's the role that that plays to explain the why with a little bit more detail than than anything else any skill can be developed by greater understanding and and Rory as a person who who learns languages and, and knows languages it's through repetition and, and Steve and I through uh, the our musical exploits when we were younger the, the, the fact that you just repeat and repeat and repeat it, it, it finds its way into football as well but um so that 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 is one thing that we can expect rather than just hope to be part of football punditry and to try and stop those lazy narratives developing. But there should also not be some kind of purity test to say that unless you know everything all the time and get it right 100% of the time, you are you are nothing. There is, there is a, a nice little um, sweet spot in the middle where, of course, uh, Neville Longbottom England International fits rather sweetly, I should suggest. I don't think in any level of broadcasting or journalism, you cannot be all things to all people all of the time. Yeah. What you want is a breadth of coverage from and, and and the absorber of that coverage needs to to make sure that they they discover that breadth for themselves because it's very difficult to deliver it within one broadcast or within one publication but yeah you can't as a pundit give the point of view from both sets of fan bases a tactical and analytical and a experience of being a pro all within a 20, 30 second soundbite. It's just not possible. So it shouldn't, it's not something we should even be striving for. And I, th- I do wonder, you know, sometimes whether, I don't know what kind of advice ex-pros are given before they, they enter the stu- the bright lights of the studio. But I, whenever any, anybody has said to me, kind of, what do you, I mean, it, this, is, this is a horrible name drop and I don't, I, I'm conscious that I sound like a prick, but like when Danny, when Danny Higginbotham was starting out, Danny got in touch with quite a lot of journalists to, to ask kind of what they thought a pundit should be and and he called me because I'd known Danny for a little a little while and and I basically said look just it's it's whatever interests you but also just remember you don't like you don't have to make those broad sweeping statements like you're effectively there to be to give the benefit of your experience so I I think that pundits who are especially recently retired ex-players are much better used or much more insightful if they focus principally on the kind of the experience of their playing days like this situation is similar to to this situation and he gets a bit of stick but like, I actually think that's what like someone like Michael Richards who's become essentially omnipresent in recent years actually does really well is that you know Michael played with a lot of a lot of people who are still playing on major football teams and he knows what they're like behind the scenes so he kind of gets hammered for not being able to yeah, it'll be for some sort of level of knowledge that that some that somebody out there has has specifically researched, as that's their you know that's their specific interest. And I'm not accusing Andrew Hopper Davis of this, but you know if you're particularly interested in the science in the sports science side of it, you will have a grasp of the sports science that an ex-pro or a commentator or a journalist probably won't have, because the expectation is that you're. I guess your role is to know as much as you can about a lot of different things, rather than a lot of things about one thing. But the ex-pros, I think, who, who focus most on, on the kind of the, the dynamics of, of what it's like at a club behind the scenes in a certain situation, I think that is where they're most illuminating. And I guess the failure is, is in the media organisations for not giving other people, whether that's fitness coaches or conditioning experts or analysts or whatever it might be, you wonder whether maybe there needs to be a little bit more democracy in, in which voices are heard because football is not actually just a story of the 11 people on the pitch it's it's the story of all the people who who are doing the work to get those 11 people on the pitch and I and I do wonder you always hear it with journalists but people you, people very nicely say there should be more journalists in studios but 
And that's probably true. Just journalists have a slightly broader perspective than next players, but or a certainly different perspective than next players. But there probably should be, yeah, like conditioning coaches and and analysts in in studios as well, in the same way as we've now got referees. And there are good and bad examples of pundits, and there would be in the future, should that be employed, good and bad examples of that. So yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Hope hope for the good and don't be afraid to say when the bad is bad. Um, finally, from Buffalo, Ray George, who is one of many listeners in New York, but our only New York correspondent, NYC capitalized. Hi, gents. I hope this finds you all safe, healthy and wearing appropriately colored trousers. I had one of my first train rides in many months from Long Island to New York City, including a brief subway ride, reminding us that he uh, is constantly telling us about the contactless situation of the subway in that's, NYC. That's mainly why we have an NYC correspondent. <laughs> yes, it's the, first, it's the first and most enduring uh, part of the correspondence that Ray uh, provides us with, um, which gave me, he says, the opportunity to catch up on the last three pods all so engaging and entertaining. Oh, that might be the other reason why. Uh, they took away the anxiety of riding a train where the more people get on, the less social distancing space there is. It was a troubling ride for him. I was intrigued by the episode on pragmatism and the resulting semantic discussion, clarifying not only the definition, but also a more suitable word that might be employed. Fear, he uh, remembers. What came to mind for me as perhaps a better description would be proactive versus reactive. It strikes me that some managers who are more wedded to a footballing philosophy will stick with that philosophy regardless of the opponent. Not that they ignore the opponent's strengths or formation, but it does not alter their style. These are the proactive. Whereas those who feel outmatched or outgunned need to spend more time focusing on neutralizing their opponent's strengths and adapting, typically the weaker sides, and they are the more reactive. Perhaps a nicer way of saying that they're fearful. I hope this provides Rory the opportunity to write his perspective while avoiding accusations of plagiarism from his friend, he says in inverted commas, Jonathan Wilson. Also, in an effort to show more gratitude in 2021, I had an idea that I wanted to share. Seeing the level of enjoyment that you have given me and no doubt others, he says, not quite as specifically as I'd hoped him to be, over these difficult 10 months, all for a very reasonable price, I wanted to consider a way of giving something back. And while I have no sponsorships to offer, Alan Key or otherwise, in the spirit of the pod, I was wondering if I could send you some food to share during the taping of your pod. A small thank you for your continued work. I thought I would make the offer and guarantee that others would do the same so that it became a theme during lockdown. I'm not sure you have that power, Ray. Short of that, Perhaps you could suggest a food bank in your area that we could donate to. Once again, sticking to the food theme, he says. Let me know either way. Be well. That's from Ray. Well, I mean, we we probably all have enough food. I know I do. Um, I've got a packet of sports mixture in my desk <laughs> that Kate doesn't know about. But the food bank idea I like very much. I don't want to. There's no point charging people for anything. And setting up a Kickstarter is undignified um, or a Patreon. Uh, but we could we could if people feel the need to contribute to anything they could contribute to a food bank yes we could put a link uh, to a local food bank on our uh, on our twitter feed and uh, if people felt so inclined it, for, for people to send us food we would become the football podcast equivalent of people sending cakes to test yeah. match special yeah. and that seems unnecessary uh, test match special uh, rory is cricket something that you yes no i know i know about the cakes and and i think although it's one of those things that i think is quite sweet but horribly twee and british and it's also very easy for them because they are in a commentary box in a ground and it's easy to take that cake to that commentary box in that ground. Or they, they always have to send down producer Henry to pick it up. And I wonder if it always arrives 100% intact in the commentary box via Henry. Um, and I must admit, I've been in the TMS commentary box whilst they've been enjoying cake and I have been particularly jealous, although in this time of COVID, it is the worst possible thing you could ever imagine doing. Um, 
correspondence of any kind to setbeastmenu at gmail.com. So then, uh, we have the great honor this week of using the words of Rory Smith to introduce the topic of discussion on Set Beast Menu. Uh, Rory, shall I read your words or would you like to read your own words? Uh, no, you read them. It's fine. Okay. I trust in that, in that I trust case, from Rory Just. Smith, he says this. Last week, FIFA and the six continental confederations released a statement warning that should Europe's most powerful clubs launch a breakaway competition, either to rival the Champions League or to replace the various national leagues, their players would be barred from playing in international competitions, the World Cup, the Copa America, the European Championship and so on. Paul Alexander on Twitter suggested that that might give Wales a chance of winning the World Cup. Now, that's a bit of a stretch, says Rory. Remember, these words are from Rory, but it's worth considering. Who would win the World Cup if players from the 15 teams who would be the permanent members of the Super League were barred? Note, it would not be Wales, for reasons that will become clear when you see the Spanish side. Or, as it's written, when you see, like, you know, the Spanish side. For this exercise, it is assumed that the 15 permanent members are Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, Juventus, AC Milan, Inter Milan, that's Inter Milano, as they're going to be officially, PSG, Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund, and the six members of the Premier League's big six, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, and Tottenham. Whether that is actually the 15 who would be the permanent members, I have no idea, says Rory. I think Spurs might not be invited, for example, and Bayern have apparently distanced themselves from the whole concept. The way I have constructed the teams is easy. I've taken players from those 15 out and replaced them with best guesses, largely drawn from recent call-ups, etc. And where that has not worked, I've used transfer marks as a way of gauging the most valuable alternatives. It is not intended to be scientific because it is just a bit of fun. So let's have fun. And that is Rory's preamble. I should also just add that this will be a pronunciation-related minefield. This will be amazing. So, so can we please, in advance, ask for your forgiveness? Particularly as it is a rod that we have very much made for our own backs. To explain slightly, the reason I was interested in this idea is partly because it's fun, and I like having fun. I'm a fun-loving person. It was partly because I wondered whether, at first, it might level the playing field so that you've got teams like Croatia, obviously World Cup finalists, uh, maybe Russia and Turkey, someone like Colombia or Uruguay, whether it would suddenly, if you took that that initial kind of the, the top, I don't know, 100 players out, out of it, if you would then see kind of a level playing field and you, you'd go into it thinking, actually, do you know what? Colombia could easily win the World Cup. They have a, a, a sort of 23 that is roughly as strong as, I don't know, Brazil's team minus Neymar and Firmino and Fabinho and Coutinho and whoever. And then I had a kind of halfway through, I had a bit of a dip in confidence because I thought, actually, do you know what? The answer to this question is France, because France famously can name about four squads that would all compete for the World Cup. You know, people like Jules Koundé are not even in the French side. Amrit Laporte is not in the French side. So you think, well, hang on, that it must be then. And then I had a realisation that we'll come to later about how it wouldn't, I don't think it would open the door for like a team like Wales to win it. But I do think it would have a, a marked effect on the fortunes of a certain type of nation, which in itself is actually quite an intriguing, not findings, it's not scientific, but kind of thoughts to have. But basically, I enjoyed doing it because it meant I had to learn what formation Brazil play. <laughs> and then, brilliantly, I caught myself about halfway through actually changing the formation, thinking, now, do you, do you know what? 
Portugal shouldn't be playing like that. Why are Portugal playing a 4-3-3? It doesn't make any sense for Portugal. Fernando Santos, you're doing badly at your job. You need to think about it more deeply. And at that point, I thought, right, I better stop doing this because I'm getting carried away. But it was a lot of fun. I I love the idea that Rory dived in with, you'll pick your best players per position. None of this nonsense of trying to squeeze too many midfielders in. You need a left winger. Do you know, I'm quite pleased with the balance of my sides. I think I've done quite a good job of getting a, a balance of the side, and which I'm hoping that the other Rory is going to discover. Uh, yes. So uh, before we explain what that means, um, we, we, two things. We are not going to get in, into a discussion about how best to use your resources as an international coach. Um, we, we did have a conversation way, way back where we formulated a select 11 of teams, players for teams outside the Premier League's big six. How similar would you say this is to that in learning about the depth of quality in, as we will find out today, world football? So the, the thing that struck me really, is, and it will have struck you, because I'm, I'm a considerate podcast guest. I'm not a guest. I'm more, more than that. You are colleague. co-presenter I'm a podcast colleague. contributor. Colleague. I'm a podcast colleague. Uh, so I not only list, listed the names, I listed, listed the clubs that the players play for, which, if I'm completely honest... I didn't need. I wouldn't have needed because obviously I'd read all the names, so I've, my, my memory is enough to think oh, that's that's who I mean by that. Rodriguez. Um, I assumed Steve would have heard of ninety nine percent of them all because he does a lot of kind of European work, um, and he's doing the Copa Libertadores final. So I know he's doing lots of research on South American football, it's particularly Brazilian at the moment. Um, Hugh, I thought would be fine. Chinch, I thought would have heard of about fifteen percent of the players. <laughs> so. Wasn't I didn't really fancy getting Chinch's opinion on who I kind of thought that the episode might just be him asking who Jordan Veritu played for. Are you, um, are you suggesting Chinch would have heard of the ones that played for middling to bottom teams in the Premier League? Basically, yeah, that's what who Chinch would have excellent opinions on. So, what became very clear very quickly was that you are talking about players who are still sort of coalesced at certain clubs. So, there's a lot of Roma, there's a lot of Everton, there's a lot of Villa, that, that level of team. It's not like if you take the super clubs out of it, the talent is evenly spread. There's just another kind of tranche of super clubs waiting in the wings. So if you took the 15 permanent members who would join the Super League out of it, what, would, what you would end up with pretty quickly, I think, is basically the same problem just with different in the, in the remaining national leagues, but with different names. You've kind of lifted the lid a little bit on the recruitment strategy of a lot of these clubs that sit outside of the clubs who are guaranteed Champions League football in their respective divisions, I would suggest. Yeah, I think so. It's kind of the, it's the, the, the people on the fringes of the international teams, I think, who are, who are being picked up. And I think the other thing that really struck me was that none of the kind of industrialised talent-producing nations of Western Europe actually have as much depth of talent outside the major teams as we think. It actually shows how efficient the big teams are at hoovering up all of the talent because certainly with with France, with France is the best example. You see, if, if if you know, if I went into it with the with the preconception that France could name four four squads who could win the World Cup, taking the top fifteen teams out of it wipes out about two and a half of them. They are all at those teams. There is it's unerring how 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 much talent those teams have have taken have kind of yeah gathered together and I guess that I mean that that probably isn't a huge realization but it's interesting it's just interesting to see it sort of spelled out so starkly and only one French team in those 15 as well which gives you an impression of of how good the scouting might yeah, be can... by other clubs into French football that is that's the reputation a... of the international team yeah that's but that's a caveat I should probably add is that if that you could 
I could have fiddled it a little bit further and said, right, well, actually, so what happens if Marseille or Lyon are in, are in the European Super League? I, I would imagine if I was arranging the European Super League, you want a derby for every team. So you wouldn't want just one representative from France. Equally, you could make a case that, I don't know, say Roma or Napoli might end up being able to finagle their way into it because they might have a like a strong power base or they might have a, someone advocating for them within the corridors of power at the ECA or whatever who, who could get them a place. I think the 15 teams that we chose are the most likely to be involved if this thing ever happens, which it won't. But that's not to say that it's obviously, it's not, it's not completely scientific. So it could be that if you put Roma in there instead of Spurs, suddenly England get huge, hugely stronger because they get Harry Kane all of a sudden. But Italy lose about half their team because half the Italian, I think, yeah, four or five of the Italian players that I named are at Roma because that is where all of the talent is gathered if it's not at Juve, Milan or Inter. It's so terribly depressing, though, isn't it, that we're, you're talking about 15 guaranteed teams, of which six are from the Premier League, and you're talking about the likes of Marseille or Roma possibly not having a seat at the table. It, it, it just adds another layer of the farcical to this whole discussion anyway, but I know that's a slight tangent on what but, we're getting at. But I, well, I was just going to say, we, we have obviously had a conversation about which teams to include in the European Super League that we would formulate, but also we've had a conversation um, subsequent to that about the, the, the formulation of how a Super League uh, might look like if it wasn't up to us, which frankly would be a ridiculous idea, even if Insane. it is a ridiculous idea in the first place. A couple of things to mention before we get into the teams. The first thing is, is that the, the mention of the younger Rory is that uh, he has chosen eight of the teams and he is going to simulate a World Cup on FIFA when his homeschooling father allows him a damn 20-minute break to be able to get through to it. And also, I want to uh, make sure that we at least touch on the interesting political uh, game playing that is happening because of the uh, ramifications of this statement. So, uh, Rory, when you initially tweeted about it, it was interesting because you said after FIFA declared that they, UEFA and all the other continental confederations would be barring these players, that should you actually play that out, they would eventually have to relent. No, they'd cave in a second. Yeah, of course they would. So uh, explain explain that to us. Well, it, the, it's understandable why FIFA and the Confederations have all done this. They're, they're trying to stave off the threat of a Super League. They're trying to reassert their power and their control. But if the clubs were so minded that they decided we're going to do a breakaway, we just full on kind of outside the Champions League, outside the National Leagues, we're going to form our own closed competition, a kind of European NFL of, of soccer, the money would talk and the players would go for the money, which is which is always sounds like you're insulting the players. I'm not. That's the sensible thing to do. In that situation, there is not a chance that FIFA would allow their World Cup to go ahead without, well, 15 times by 25... I'm not, this is embarrassing. 300, maybe, I don't know. 400. In the edit, I might make that pause way longer. <laughs> and the sound effect, they, you know, when, when they have tumbleweed blows across the, sc- the screen in a black and white movie. Lots of players. So essentially they would, they would call FIFA's bluff. Um, Are you doing the calculation on your phone? So there is not a chance that the, 300, the 375 players who kind of comprise those, 20, those 15 squads would be told, right, you can't play in the World Cup. They might, they might do it once. And then when they saw the Vienna figures and the illegitimacy of, of the tournament, they would stop doing it and, and an entente would be found. And to be honest, that's entirely right because as with so much with football, 
these are all like man-made things. Like FIFA doesn't have to be in charge of football. For, personally, I think it's better that FIFA's in charge than the clubs are in charge, but it doesn't have to be like that. Equally, you, you know, the, the European Confederation doesn't have to be UEFA. It's just a convention that we've all signed up to. And if UEFA, if UEFA eventually is, is unfit for purpose, which again, I don't think it is, then it's, it's not like this, this all came down from Mount Sinai. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just a game that's organised in a certain way and has been organised in this way since the 1930s and 1960s. It doesn't have to be like this forever. So I think what, to me, what would happen is FIFA would make the threat. And if the clubs did, did a breakaway at some point, FIFA and UEFA and the other confederations would would seek some sort of agreement with them so that they so that everyone could rubble rubble on quite happily and, and keep riding the gravy train, which ultimately is what concerns them all. Although we will be proving over the course of the next few minutes that were that to not happen and the bluff was not called and there were to be a World Cup without those 375, just mental arithmetic got there straight away, uh, players, then it still would be very entertaining because of the following reasons. My conclusion is it would be more entertaining. There we go. And why? Because uh, the same reason why we talked about Select 11 for uh, those outside the top six is that it actually would retain the competitive element and and even potentially enhance it because of that natural levelling of the playing field by taking out 375, exactly 375 players are, uh, from the pool. So, Roy, how would you like to do this? We have 12 teams who you have uh, concocted, mm-hmm. and then uh, there are 10 other nations worth considering, uh, which uh, have uh, just a, a little whimsical addition. So how would you, would you just want to well, go let, through this? Let's, let's, roll through the, let's roll through the 12 relatively quickly. No, let's, not, let's not dally. And then we can flip through some of the 10 as well. And then, then we can all get on with our lives. Well, in that case, you do Brazil. Stephen can do Argentina. And I'll have a go at Uruguay. And we'll rotate round just to make it interesting for the person who has to listen. So obviously Brazil, we know the names of the players who they'll lose. No Neymar, no Fabinho, no Roberto Firmino, no David Luiz, no, you know, they, no Thiago Silva. They lose a fair old whack of, their, of what is the, currently their first choice team. Um, but I think what's left isn't, isn't too bad. So... You have the likes of Allen of Everton and Douglas Louise at Villa with Bruno Guimaraes of Leon in midfield. Front three of Everton, of Benfica. There's a lot of people who are either called Everton or play for Everton <laughs> in this squad. Um, Everton of Benfica, Gabriel Barbosa, Barbosa Gabigol of Flamengo and Richarlison of Everton, not called Everton. Um, but they've got reasonable depth. They've got, it's again, it's, and this will be a theme, there's quite a lot of, of domestic-based players. In fact, I think, apart from Diego Carlos at Sevilla, the, the defence would be entirely domestic-based. And it's slightly younger. So you've got people like Mateus Junior, who's playing at Hertha Berlin, who I think is 21 or 22. Um, Bremer at Torino, who's 21. Uh, Anthony and David Neres at Ajax, both early 20s. It's, it's that next generation of players who would be there for Brazil. But it's, the, the talent level is reasonably deep. So you've mentioned uh, a player who plays for Everton, a player who's called Everton, but doesn't play for Everton. And you've forgotten off the goalkeeper who is... Weverton. There we go. And what's interesting about that Brazil team is that five of the 11 that you have down as a starting lineup would be domestic-based. So we would find out a little bit about whether there's that layer of talent from Brazil. So the very top players end up at the top European clubs. There are then lots of other Brazilians playing in European leagues. But is there a a middle stanza of that that remains playing for the big domestic clubs. And we'd find a little bit more from a, from a global point of view about the strength and depth of, of the Brazilian domestic competition, probably. You have Brazil in a 4-3-3, Weverton in goal, Gabriel Menino, uh, Diego Carlos and uh, Rodrigo Caio and Guilherme Arana. 
who's excellent on Football Manager 20, if anybody uh, is interested in that. Uh, so that's the back four. Then you've got Alan Br- Bruno Guimaraes and Douglas Luiz as a three. And then Everton, Gabriel Barbosa and Richarlison uh, up front. So, Stephen, on to Argentina. Well, they'd be without a fella called Messi. There'd be no Aguero, Lautaro Martinez, Angel Di Maria. Uh, those sorts of players would all be absent. But interestingly, apart by comparison to Brazil, uh, they would, barring one, all still be European-based from what Rory has conjured up in terms of their 11. A goalkeeper would be Musso of Udinese, Montiel of River Plate, Martinez of Ajax, Senesi of Feyenoord and Taliafico of Ajax. That would be the back four. Palacios of Leverkusen, Rodrigo de Paul, Udinese. And then you'd have Sevillas of Campos, Papu Gomez of Atalanta, uh, Gonzalez at Stuttgart, who's an excellent emerging player in the Bundesliga, and uh, Lucas Alario, who plays up front for Leverkusen. That would be their 11. So 4 you, 2 3 1. Yeah, I think I changed their formations. I got annoyed, decided they weren't playing it right. Um, <laughs> the, the, the football manager, Deet, inside in, in me came out a little bit. I think they, Steve's right, they, they've, got a, they've got a bit more depth of talent at those, that sort of second tier of clubs in Europe. Um, Interesting, actually, there's quite a lot of Argentinian defenders in Holland. Not quite sure when that started happening. Um, Montiel, the River Plate right back, is the first choice right back for Argentina at the moment, as far as I can tell. So they're not, there's no, they're not losing anything there. Um, and then there's people like, you know, Manuel Lanzini, Joaquin Correa, or Angel Correa, I was a bit confused. The lad Correa, plays for Lazio. Uh, Mariano Almada of LS Sarsfield, who was, I think, a couple of years ago, was the next Messi and now isn't. Um, Emmy Martinez at Villa. Nicholas Ot- I dropped Nicholas Ot- Otamendi, who's obviously at Benfica now, so is eligible, but I dropped him because he's old. And yeah, they, they kind of have the... the I, it struck me that Argentina maybe have a little bit more depth, actually, than Brazil of players in Europe. Next to Uruguay um, and the lineup, as per Mr. Smith, is Campania from Albatine. Caceres, that's the goalkeeper. Caceres from Fiorentina, Godin from Cagliari, uh, Coates from Sporting, Laxalt from Celtic. Uh, that's your back four. Nandes from Cagliari, second Cagliari player in this team. Uh, Aaron Bari from Getafe, De Araceta from Flamengo, and De La Cruz from River Plate. And then Maxi Gomez up front from Valencia alongside Nunez of Benfica. That's not bad for Uruguay. Well, you, you, were, you, you were toying with Uruguay, I think, before including them in this list, but that doesn't sound too bad because of a yeah. couple of moves from uh, uh, significant players recently to clubs outside of those 15. It's, it's actually, fully enough, from Uruguay, it's interesting because they, it kind of suggests what life is going to be like when Suarez and Cavani retire, basically. Suarez has had a great season. I think Cavani's been fantastic for Manchester United, but that, that is what the Uruguayan team would look like without those two kind of generational talents. And I think that in itself is quite interesting. They didn't lose a vast amount. The biggest loss is probably Jose Jimenez of Atletico Madrid. That's probably the player they'd miss the most. I don't think that team realistically could win the World Cup, but they felt like the sort of team who you might expect to be a contender. So um, I thought I might as well include them. And do you know what? Hector's come in. I think he's just been out for his wee and his um his nighttime treat, which is not a euphemism. Uh, and he is scra- he comes in and he jumps on the sofa and he scratches at it to try and get himself comfortable. It's really annoying. But he is changing the channel on the television, which makes me think <laughs> I now know where the remote is. So bear with me a second. So I, I love the fact that uh, you blame your son <laughs> for losing it, and then you need your dog uh, to find it again. Uh, whilst we don't have Rory, Stephen, would you like to do Columbia? I will do Colombia, who, when I saw the team that Rory had come up with for Colombia, 
I drew a smiley face next to it because I, I found this quite intriguing. And I think there's a, a strong case for them to be the it big wasn't winners. Hector. It wasn't Hector. It, it wasn't Hector. The, um, it had been taken through into the other room as expected. I'm going to blame Edward. We moved on to Columbia in your absence, Sir Rory. And Stephen was regaling us with why he put a smiley face next to the team. Just because I thought that they looked like they might be the big winners of the, the South American contingent. They didn't seem to be too badly hampered by, by players lost and there was enough strength in there. And I think they, the, the, if, if I run through the team, there's an, an intriguing component up front for them. Uh, their goalkeeper would be Ospina of Napoli. Uh, the back four, Arias of Leverkusen, uh, Mina of Everton, Murea, Mureo of Celta Vigo, and Moika, is that correct, of Elche? That's, I, that's what I go with, yeah. Uh, Barrios of Zenit, Uribe of Porto, uh, Lerma, who was at Bournemouth, and then this is when I think it gets really interesting, Muriel and Zapata, both of Atalanta, uh, with James Rodriguez of Everton up front. And I just, I, lo- I just feel like Muriel and Zapata are screaming out as the kind of players that would have a sensational World Cup, even at a full-strength World Cup, and would suddenly become 40, 50 million-pound players almost overnight. So I, I like their chances in this competition. What's fascinating you know, about this is that we, are, we have probably encountered the first team who, by most standards, would be a tier below the top tiers, but because of that are now being potentially categorized catapulted to being an elite team in this competition because essentially parts of their team are average comparatively and therefore they become elite. This is where you start seeing the playing field level a little bit that Colombia are they lose Cuadrado and Davinson Sanchez but apart from that it's the same it's the same team and I think Steve's totally right I think they're the bid certainly the bid winners of South America that they they are still effectively the team that they aren't that they are now even with players of 15 clubs taken away. England come next. They have Jordan Pickford in goal, then Lamptey at Brighton. Uh, this, of course, is Rory's uh, determination. Keane, uh, Michael Keane at Everton. Tyrone Mings at Villa and James Justin at Leicester. Um, then a midfield of Phillips uh, from Leeds, Rice, West Ham and Madison at Leicester. Uh, then up front, you get three again. Barnes at Leicester, Calvert-Lewin at Everton and Jack Grealish at Aston Villa. And then underneath that, Roy, you've done also, and you've done this for quite a few teams, but this is the longest list of also's. So you've got Pope, Cody, Tarkovsky, Dunk, White, Cash, Ward-Prowse, Barkley, Loftus-Cheek, uh, Eze, Ings, Watkins, and McNeil. And um, I, I love your observation, which I will let you make yourself. Well, it's basically Aston Villa or Everton, isn't it? <laughs> the, that's that's basically what the, what the England team is. And that's no great surprise if you take out the top six that... that that's basically what you're left with is the seventh best team in the Premier League. That's that's my conclusion. It's it's not particularly profound. I think I, I do think England, in terms of depth of talent, actually have an edge on a lot of the other nations. And I think actually it works for them that the top six, the top six ultimately don't have that many English players. They do have the best of them, obviously, but they don't have that many. They're not in the same ways. Say Juventus have a quite strongly Italian core, or Barcelona, you know, have a core of, of Spanish players who have you know, been part of the Spanish side for a long time. That's not really true of England. So, you know, Pickford, Michael Keane, Declan Rice, Grealish or Madison, possibly even, well, maybe not Calvert-Lewin's, he's back up to Kane. But, you know, the, 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 you've, you've still got four of your first teamers there, basically. Um, the problem that I would say for England is that I think that although a lot of those names are quite familiar, the ones who are kind of would, would comprise the squad... I'm not sure the quality holds up quite as much as it might do, is what I would say. So I think that they'd England come out of it pretty well, 
in terms of the depth of talent, although it's maybe not for the right reason. It's because there's not that many English players at the top six. I'm not sure. I think it, it levels off pretty quickly in terms of how good the players who are left are. And given the argument that we've had over the course of the last, what, 10 plus years about England being less quantity, more quality because of those those players who do play for the top six or get regular Champions League footballers for some reason has to be the qualifying aspect of it. Uh, this is probably an example of quantity over quality. Lots yeah, of players, so, yeah. but not yeah. necessarily the best. Stephen, you were going to come in there. Yeah, just, you can imagine that England team finishing an international friendly or a yes. Nations League dead rubber. It, it's not an, an entirely unrealistic looking England eleven. On to France. And uh, Rory, bearing in mind that your, uh, your thinking started with this team, uh, it'll be interesting for you to read it out for us. Yeah, so basically France have got a lot of talent, but what you find when you take away the top 15 clubs is that that talent is not only concentrated at certain places, it's concentrated in certain positions. So they've got, a, a, they've got loads of strength in depth at centre-half, but I had to kind of fiddle about with the midfield a little bit just to, just to kind of make it, it work. So I think they generally play either a 4 2 one or a 4 3 3 if you take away Kante and Pogba and all the others, they maybe don't actually have the personnel to do that particularly easily. So what I went with was Mike Magnon at Lille, uh, Leo Dubois of Lyon, uh, Upamecano of Leipzig and Jules Trunde of Sevilla, Luca Dean of Everton, doing well Everton. They're going to be knackered the season after this World Cup. <laughs> um, Eduardo Camavinga, the sensation at Rennes, uh, Jose Marois of Lyon, uh, Florian Tovin of Marseille, uh, Christopher Nkunku of Leipzig, uh, Jonathan Ikone of Lille and Marcus Taram of Gladbach. And then you've got players like Ibrahim Akinate, Wesley Fafana, um, the aforementioned Jordan Veratu, Nabil Fakir, uh, Moussa Diaby of Leverkusen, and Alassane Player at, at, at Gladbach on the bench. The, that first team, I think, is pretty good, but they ultimately, that, that attacking quadrant of Tovan, Kunku, Ikone and Taram compared to what they actually have is not much. So my initial guess was, as I say, that France would you'd look at the French team, even without the players from those, those big clubs, and you'd think, actually, they'd still win it. I don't know if that's true. Now, I'd go along with that. The fact that Florian Tovan is in that team tells you how much weaker it has become. You, you've, you've taken an, a real elite-level squad, and it's, been, it's completely evaporated. It's still competitive, but nothing like as formidable as it would have been. Now, I would have thought um, by massively overly stereotypical thoughts that Germany would provide a very strong team because we have always talked, have we not, over the course of the last few tournaments that, uh, like France, I suppose, to a certain extent, Germany, those players who are left out of a squad have you scratching your head uh, after, of course, Leroy Sané was last time around. So, Germany, Stephen, would you like to take us through uh, the German team that Rory has come up with? Yes, well... Germany are seriously hampered. I reckon at the weekend, seven of Bayern Munich's starting 11 in the win over Schalke could arguably be Germany's starting 11. So they are massively, massively restricted under these circumstances. Uh, the goalkeeper for Germany would be Eintracht Frankfurt's trap. Uh, back four, Klostermann of Leipzig, uh, Matthias Ginter of uh, Gladbach, Jonathan Tarr of Leverkusen and uh, Marcel Holstenberg also of Leipzig, uh, you'd have Nadia Mamiri of Leverkusen, uh, Neuhaus of Gladbach, uh, Kerem Demirbe of Leverkusen, and then a front three of Jonas Hoffmann of Gladbach, uh, Lukas Waldschmidt of Benfica, and Monaco's Kevin 
Volland, uh, the likes of uh, Koch from Leeds, Goosens of Atlanta, uh, Serdar is Schalke, Avert, who's an interesting one at Leverkusen, emerging talent, but he's he's still um, still only seventeen. So the fact that they you know they're picking that you, you, in their squad they'd have an emerging seventeen year old shows you how many players have disappeared out of the Germany squad. It's funny just that a lot of people in Germany are quite worried about what's behind the kind of great generation that I guess like Joshua Kimmich is the is the is the last kind of incarnation of almost and you know, you've got Timo Werner obviously and, and Havertz and yeah someone like Florian Wurtz is is probably the future but there's there's not many others and I it really struck me that I think Germany's defense is probably fine but getting a midfield together was incredibly difficult really hard of players who could because the, the temptation would be to say well Florian Wurtz is going to be amazing so I'll put him in but I with, again without wanting to sound like a knob like I want it to be reasonably realistic Demir Bay I don't think he's played for Germany for two years well I did Leverkusen at the weekend and Demir Bay wasn't even in the Leverkusen starting lineup against Wolfsburg which suggests oh. he's, that to be honest his, his international call up comes, comes as a real surprise <laughs> congratulations <laughs> <laughs> the, the news is being uh, celebrated in the household I, I just wonder if you, if you mentioned about Aston Villa um, and Everton in the England team, and there are a few Leicester players in there as well. It's interesting to translate that to the German team that you've picked, Rory, because you've got probably Borussia Mönchengladbach, um, Bayer Leverkusen and RB Leipzig as those three versions of it. Leipzig are Leicester, uh, Gladbach and Leverkusen are Aston Villa and Everton. It just works for so many reasons. Basically. Spain have Simon from Athletic in goal, Gorosabel from Real Sociedad, then Martinez from Athletic, Torres from Villarreal and Gaia from Valencia across the back, Soler from Valencia, Marino from Real Sociedad, Fabian from Napoli, then up front three of Olmo, Leipzig, uh, Gerard, I should probably say from Villarreal, and uh, Traore from Wolves as well. That's that's an 11 and uh, my fascination now with which teams sit outside the uh, supposed elite in Spain. I appreciate that that's only three teams um, as far as our 15 are concerned, not the six of, uh, of England. But it's interesting to see again how you find some of those people just outside those 15 clubs populate similarly small amount of clubs. So you've got Valencia, Athletic, uh, and Villarreal as well in that lineup. Yeah, I think Spain are actually one of the big winners from this, which maybe is is again to do with the fact that partly they've only lost three three teams, obviously compared to England six, but also those three because they are sort of members of the super elite. Although obviously you lose you losing Sergio Busquets, you losing Sergio Ramos, you know Jordi Alba. There's plenty of players that they, that they would be without. The bulk of the players at Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atletico are not Spanish. So the impact on the national team is, is not as great as, it, as you might expect it to be. Um, I think uh, F- uh, Fabian Ruiz is the best, at Napoli is probably the best player who is selected in any of these teams. Um, he is not someone who will be outside of that top 15 teams for very long, I wouldn't have thought. They've got depth, they've got quality, and I think they still have a kind of, technical level that not I'm not sure any other team matches so I think the Spanish actually come out of it quite well just regarding Spain I wonder whether the Europa League gives us a little bit of an indication as to how well they might do because it is teams from outside of the the Champions League places in Spain that seem to do so well in the Europa League so why not the the players who represent those clubs doing well for the for the national team in our uh, our restructured World Cup Rory to Italy yep absolutely uh Salvatore Sirigu of Torino, uh, Di Lorenzo of Napoli, Acerbi of Lazio and Mancini of Roma. This is where the Roma starts. Uh, Leonardo Spinazzola of Roma, uh, Manuel Locatelli of Sassuolo, uh, Luca Pellegrini, Roma. 
Domenico Berardi, Sassuolo, Nicolo Zaniolo, Roma, <laughs> Lorenzo Insigne, Napoli, and Ciro Mobile of Lazio. Um, funny, I mean, Italy's not, Italy aren't in a great place as a national team at the moment, to be honest. So it didn't surprise me particularly that, that obviously, apart from the Juve contingent and one or two at the Milan clubs, that they wouldn't be that weakened by removing the, the, the elite from it. But it does, again, what, what really struck me with, with listing that one was that um, literally all the talent is gathered at, at, largely at Roma. Because even if you think about Atalanta, who have been the standard bearers for Serie A in Europe for the last couple of years, um, certainly in the Champions League, a lot of their players are not Italian. And that's not a problem. It's, uh, there's, no, there's no judgment here, but um, it doesn't affect the national team as much as, as you might expect. There are a couple of players from Atalanta who'd, who'd make it, Piscina, Mattia Caldara, um, but I think the problem that Italy have there is the same as the problem that Italy have generally, which is I'm not sure they have the depth of talent to compete, uh, regardless of what parameters you put in place. But there's players who play for good clubs in there. I was, I was a little bit surprised to see you, you wrote them off quite as easily as you did. We always underestimate Germany's attacking strengths yeah. going into a World Cup. So you'd have to be careful not to right off Germany under these circumstances. It's just something about Italy and, and major competitions and the fact that those players are used to representing big clubs like, like Roma, like Lazio, like Napoli, that they, they might be able to raise their standard. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I suppose in Lorenzo, in, in Lorenzo Insigne, you do have a kind of proven Champions League performer. Um, Zaniolo's obviously had injury problems, but is hugely talented. Immobile's a proven goal scorer. It, it's, it's funny actually seeing different teams. So Germany, for example, suffered in attack. But not, their defence was basically all right. You kind of think, well, you know, if Germany had to go into a World Cup with a centre-half pair of Matthias Ginter and Jonathan Tarr, that's not a vast amount worse than what it would be normally. With Italy, it's the attack that's basically all right. The, the attack doesn't lose a vast amount of quality. The defence, I think, is a little bit a little bit light to me. In the midfield, I'm not entirely sure about. I don't know. And Steve's right, though, that you, you probably shouldn't underestimate the fact that they are all drawn basically from quite big teams and that helps name ID as well because part part of the the casual fans appreciation of international football is that they have heard of those players who don't play in England if they're English football fans because they have seen those other big teams play so they recognize the name and as is with everything in life if you recognize them and you've heard of them you're going to assume that they're better than the ones that you haven't heard of and then if we move on to the next team which is Belgium they might suffer from that the most because if you think about the Belgium first choice 11 that is completely filled with players whose name ID is incredibly high but behind that what's the shadow squad like when you take out those 15 teams and the players that play for them Stephen you're with Belgium they would have Wolfsburg's goalkeeper Cohen Castiles, uh, Leander Dendonka of Wolves, Jason Denier of Lyon. Climate change. <laughs> uh, Jan Vertonghen of Benfica. That would be uh, a back three for them. Uh, Dennis Pratt of Leicester, uh, Tielemans, his uh, teammate Mangala at Stuttgart, and uh, Castagna, another Leicester player in uh, the Belgian midfield. Uh, Vanneken of Club Brugge. Uh, to give them their correct name, Dries Mertens of Napoli <laughs> and up front Crystal Palace is Penteke. They're not scoring too many goals at this World Cup. <laughs> I think the, the, the thing that what this shows you with Belgium is that they are victims almost of being the buzz nation yeah. of creating talent. It's almost as like the elite clubs all have to have a Belgian national team player in their ranks to give them 
credibility to make them seem like they've got their finger on the pulse of of that pool of talent. So they are they are as much as any of the European nations utterly decimated by this Super League thing. It, it, the other the other thing I would say about Belgium actually is that it it does suggest that the spread of talent is a little bit deeper than maybe it's given credit for. Steve's completely right that that the fact that they are the buzz nation damages them in this context. But that's not a bad team to be able to put out. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a Leicester standard team. I agree with them that the, the goals might be quite hard to come by. But, and there, there are, to be fair, there's a couple of, of younger players coming through in Belgium who I will, I will not pretend to have seen play. I thought they'd be completely wiped out and you'd be, you know, you'd be picking a, a kind of Jupiler League team. It's not, it's not quite as bad as that. But what's really interesting to me, this might be a bit nerdy, is the comparison with the Dutch. It, which is not only nerdy, but it's also excellent presentation. Rory, exactly. Because it means that you can segue perfectly onto I'm very happy for you to do the Dutch team if you are standing by. If that's okay, yeah. The, so obviously the Dutch lose Frenkie de Jong and Matisse de Ligt and Ginny Wijnaldum and Virgil van Dijk and, and kind of a lot of the household names that are in that Dutch team that, that we think of as being the cornerstones of the Dutch team. But the team that I got together was Jasper Chilison of Valencia. Um, Denzel Dumfries of PSV, uh, Peshers, Ajax, Sven Botman of Lille, Patrick van Aanholt of Palace, Ryan Gravenberch and David Klaassen of Ajax, Stephen Bergwies, Memphis Depay, um, Donald Marlin at PSV, and whichever De Jong plays for Sevilla, Luke, I think. Um, <laughs> but there's a few more who, who I kind of left out. Uh, Dali Sintgraven at Leverkusen, Justin Kleiver at Leipzig, Hans Hatterberg at Atalanta. And what really struck me with, with the Dutch was that if we did this exercise again in two years, half of those players would, would not be eligible because Per Schurz will play for a top 15 team. Sven Botman will play for a top 15 team. Ryan Gravenberch definitely will play for a top 15 team. Donald Marlon will play, will, you know, will play for some big Premier League team. And I wonder whether the Dutch have an advantage in being effectively a development, a development nation that they would, if FIFA were to go through this threat, the Dutch would basically be able to name a team of players who were about to move to big clubs. And that, I think, is the sweet spot. So I think the Dutch actually are quite instructive about what maybe this competition would look like if FIFA went through, if FIFA had to go through their threat and FIFA went through with their threat, which is that I wonder if as much as, if we're all completely honest, until now it's resembled the Europa League, but it might also have the air of kind of an under-23 competition. Like an Olympics competition. Yeah, like example. an Olympics competition, for example, with that an unlimited number of, of overage players. I think you're allowed, you're allowed three at the Olympics or something. It, this would be sort of five or six. But I think the Dutch would do quite well, generally, because they would have players who were good enough to play for the top 15, but hadn't moved there yet. And what you would get from that is that you could run this competition multiple times over and you'd get a different winner, or at least you could run it several times before you get a repeat winner. I think you would have that level of uncertainty. What you lost in, in, in glitz and glamour, you would make up for in unpredictability. Uh, we finish with Portugal who would have Rui Patricio in goal from Wolves, obviously. Then you've got Leicester's right-back Pereira, Ferro from Benfica, Semedo from Olympiacos, the other Semedo, uh, Mario Rui from Napoli, that's your back four, then Rate Sanchez from Lille, uh, Neves from Wolves, Moutinho from Wolves. You won't be surprised to hear that they're all playing for Wolves. Neto from Wolves, Andre Silva from Eintracht Frankfurt, and Gonzalo Guedes from Valencia. Uh, and there are plenty, Rory, of good names on the bench as well. Yeah, Wolves, Wolves, Wolves. Oh, and an Everton. <laughs> and an Everton. So this is basically how would Wolves do in the World Cup, <laughs> yeah. which is it's a question I think we'd all like the answer to. And, I, and I'm, I'm just, just hearing that this um, alternative World Cup will be in part um, funded by George Mendes. Well, agent, yeah. the agent of the 21st century. 
do you know what though? When when I was doing it and I worked out just how many Wolves players would be in the squad, it does make you realise that that Wolves really are getting that kind of B level of Portuguese player. That can you can take that as a criticism or as a as the opposite, depending on on your point of view. But they are kind of getting that level of player who's just about good enough to be in the squad, but probably isn't in the first team. I think they do okay, Portugal, but then they're kind of they they and Belgium strike me as being the teams that just don't just beneath that foot that top level of player don't quite have the same depth to be as competitive. I don't know if they'd be drastically better than the kind of general level of kind of last 16 teams. Well, uh, anybody who's been paying attention would be very excited about the possibility of a last 16 game between uh, Everton and Wolves or maybe (laughs) Aston Villa against uh, Wolves. You know, you want derbies. There's one for you. Um, There is just, and we'll run through these quickly, other countries worth considering, which is a group of 10 countries who who are in there, Rory, on account, and we haven't got full teams for them, just observations upon them, uh, in there for a consideration of the geographical spread of the tournament, those those teams who do well in other confederations, and also those with... Weirdly highly ranked European teams in particular who are up there according to the FIFA rankings, which is something that we'll consider in just a moment when we do a bracket. Um, but what, who would you like to pick out of, uh, of that list? There's a couple. I think Mexico are quite interesting because Mex- Mexican football is essentially a, an isolated system anyway. So the vast majority of its squad is home-based, but high quality. Um, they, lose, they lose Hector Herrera of, of Atletico Madrid, but apart from that, they've got everybody they need. Um, and they still have a front three potentially of Hervin Lozano of Napoli, uh, Raul Jimenez, presuming it's better. You will, will have noticed I'm not taking injuries into account here. Um, and Jesus Corona of Porto. Mexico will always go out in the last 16 of the World Cup. I think they would get further than that under these rules. Interestingly, the USA, which you might think would be similar, are decimated by the fact that Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic, Weston McKenney, Serginio Dest are all taken out by the super clubs. That's, a, that's actually quite a good sign for the States. The fact that losing the top 15 teams would make them significantly weaker suggests real progress. And are they all 23 and under those those players? Uh, uh, they are all, Western McKinney? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is. They're all 23 and under. Yeah. The two the two big Asian nations, South Korea and Japan, I think aren't really affected. Obviously, South Korea lose Hyun uh, Min Son of Spurs, um, but he's really their only star name. Um, and Japan lose Takumi Minamino of Liverpool. But whether either of them would benefit sufficiently from the absence of the others. I'm not sure. I think Japan actually probably slightly better place than South Korea. Croatia really badly hit. Um, Modric, Kovacic, Brozovic, Vesalko, Rebic, Perisic. That suddenly reduces Croatia to the status of mid-range Eastern European country who qualifies for the World Cup and gets knocked out in the group stage. Denmark lose base. Denmark the same. Christian Eriksen, Pierre Hjoiberg, Simon Kjar, Martin Braithwaite, Tom, uh, Thomas Delaney. Uh, they miss out. And then the African countries, I think, quite interesting because Tunisia and Algeria, who are kind of the two best African teams, um, well, two of the three best African teams, basically aren't affected apart from Algeria losing um, Riyad Mahrez and uh, Benacer of Milan. So I think they'd probably be, both be all right. Um, Senegal, who are the highest ranked African team, according to FIFA, um, lose three big names. Sadio Mane, obviously, Idrissa Gay of PSG and Edouard Mondi of Chelsea. But I think they still have enough as well in reserve to do well and to probably to benefit from the others uh, losing so many players. So I think Senegal potentially and Mexico would maybe be the two big winners of the countries who would you'd expect to be at the World Cup, but would not ordinarily think about getting to the latter stages. You didn't mention Turkey there, Rory, who'd lose uh, Demirel and Chalanolu, but they would. I still think they'd 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 flatter to deceive. 
having seen them a lot during the Nations League. They drew four. They drew four and lost two in the Nations League. So uh, I think even at full strength, they they wouldn't make as, as much of an impact as they potentially should. And with apologies to Paul, who obviously suggested in, inspired this this basic listing of footballers um, for an hour, uh, which I'm hoping has kind of hit the. Um, the sort of AMSR thing that's really popular, just kind of people listing things <laughs> in a soft voice. Um, I don't think countries like Wales or Scotland or the Republic of Ireland or, I don't know, I just like Sweden or whatever, I, I don't think they would be improved sufficiently by other people losing players to be able to make any more of an impact on a World Cup, even without the kind of the top 375 players in the world, uh, which I guess says something about how much France, Germany, Spain, and England have industrialised youth development, that they are still, even when you take out so many of their players, they are still so strong that I don't think it levels the playing field enough for those countries to have a, a decent shot. One thing I would say about Wales is that uh, according to the FIFA rankings, they are higher than USA, South Korea, Japan, Turkey, Senegal, Tunisia and Algeria uh, currently. However, the point is made and it's it's the right one to make. Uh, and again, apologies for the man who came up with the idea, albeit in a slightly indirect way. So we mentioned that uh, Rory the Younger is going to do a... a, a um, a tournament on FIFA with eight teams, but unfortunately the person who is homeschooling him will not allow him the amount of time that he needs to do that prior to recording because frankly, key stage, whatever, uh, needs to reflect the fact that he has to do actual work. So uh, we'll, we'll let you know via the medium of next week's podcast and also Twitter how that goes, but we do have a bracket. Uh, so we have a round of 16 to completely decide based only on what we have heard over the course of the last 45 minutes of who might win this competition and also completely arbitrarily because there are 12 teams in there and then four of the 10 that we needed to add in. So I added in and I hope I get your permission for this, Rory. Uh, Mexico, Japan, because I had to pick one of uh, Japan or, or, or Korea, um, Algeria and Senegal. So Fine. they're all going in. That's fair now, enough. Using the FIFA ranking to seed them, we have a round of 16 that has Belgium playing Algeria. Do we assume that Belgium will win that? Well, Algeria were very good when they played Germany in the round of 16 uh, in whatever year that was, 2014 potentially. But I think there's enough in the Belgian squad to get past them, particularly because Algeria wouldn't have Riyad Mahrez. But I think it would be really close. According to FIFA's rankings, this will be the mostly keen, mostly keenly contested uh, game of the round of 16. Uruguay against Mexico. I suspect Me Steve may, may not have looked yeah. at the Mexican squad, but I think the Mexicans would win that. Uruguay do, didn't look very strong on paper. So you, you have to assume that without being too badly affected, Mexico would win that game. Not close in terms of rankings, certainly within the 16 that we've got here, but very close in terms of how they came out of this process. Portugal against Holland. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, crikey. Steve, Steve's printed everything out and he's got... Every, <laughs> he can refer to all of them. There's quite that, a lot... Of, I, have to, I have to admit, there's quite a lot of chicken katsu curry on my notes. <laughs> I was looking at them over dinner. I go with the Dutch for that because Portugal have a real shortage of centre-halves given that Pepe and um, Jose Font are both still in the international reckoning, uh, I think that that Portugal's weakness at cent in central defence might ultimately scupper them. Rather fittingly, one of the round of 16 games is England against Colombia. Oh, 
which is a bit of a shame because we thought that Colombia would do rather well. But again, the industrialised nation that is England well, in terms of football might uh, might be good enough, or what would you it, say? Well, except that they went to penalties last time they played in the round of 16. And that was an England with Raheem Sterling and Harry Kane and all those players. This is an England that doesn't have them. And Colombia is basically the same team. So I think you have to say Colombia. Yeah, I think we, on the basis of the discussion that we've had that precedes this, you have to go with Colombia because, as we said at the time, they were the South American nation that came best out of this. And England have been, been badly affected. And in 2018, Yerry Mina got the goal. So it would have been 1-0 to Colombia because he's actually still in this team because he plays like pretty much everybody else for Everton. Uh, Brazil against Senegal, which is slightly harsh on Senegal because they, they got a tough draw there. It's an unfortunate draw. I think it probably would be Brazil. Spain against Germany is an incredibly tasty tie. But not a particularly compelling game. I think the Spanish would win it quite easily, as the, as the first team did not long ago. Argentina against Italy is another round of 16 game. Oh, I like Argentina for that. Based on Naus, gamesmanship, a little bit of shithousery. Yeah, I think Argentina, because I think Lucas Acampos is probably the most accomplished player of the lot. Argentina just, penalties. Japan against France is the final round of 16 tie, which may well be the easier or one of the easiest to predict. Yeah, I think France... Because although they're not as good as they obviously they, they would be, I think they'd probably still have too much for Japan. Uh, back to the top of the bracket for our quarterfinals, Belgium against Mexico. Now, this is interesting because Belgian team have genuinely suffered to the extent that Mexico, who haven't, even though they weren't in the original 12, will they be good enough to beat Belgium? I think in the context of this conversation, you probably have to say yes. I think you go Mexico. Holland against Colombia. Or, as I've abbreviated it to on my hastily scribbled bracket, Hull against Cole. If Colombia beat England in the round of 16, they beat Holland in the quarterfinals. Well, that's interesting. Would you have had to Holland beat, uh, England beating Holland in the round of 16, weren't they? Probably, yeah. I'm just thinking, the logic that we've applied to Colombia beating England surely has to apply again here. I think that Steve's probably right. I think Colombia, because the Dutch are quite a young team, the Colombian experience and the fact that they're, they are, you know, that's a strong international team that, that performed well at the last World Cup, basically untouched, you probably have to go Colombia. I'm also fond of these abbreviations, Bra and Spa, that's Brazil and Spain. Oh, that's a good one. Spain. Spa beats Bra on that one. Well, unless Steve demurs. No, 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 I'd go Excellent, with excellent high quality ties, even without those, uh, those players of those 15 teams. And Argentina against France is another one that's going to make you suck your teeth Ooh. in like a, like a plumber telling you how much your, your sink is going to cost to fix. Page 13, probably, probably the French. Probably the French. So we have a... Uh, an, an, Actually, an, I'm, I, oh, no, no. Really? Oh, no. Here comes the demurring. I'm gonna, you've got Tovan in the French team. <laughs> just will not get past Florian. <laughs> Poor Florian. Oh, I've scribbled out Fra. Am I going to replace it with an Arge? This is Rory's game, so he has to have the card. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's toss a coin. You've got a coin. No, no. Nobody no, has coins anymore. Want... It's a pandemic. The coin Nobody for touches 10 things that other people touch. Um, hang on, I've got some poor bar. No, I've, got, I've, got, I've, 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 I've got an idea. Heads or tails? Uh, tails. It's a head. Okay, Argentina. Argentina. Is that Steve showing off his golf watch? <laughs> no, no, it's a prize. It's because I have my proper hand ticking watch on. I, my, our history teacher used to do that. Heads is the, uh, the first half of the minute, tails is the second half of the minute. Um, and so we have a very appealing uh, couple of uh, semi finals. And one, the first one that we wouldn't have ne necessarily expected, but it's Mexico against Colombia. Amazing. 
I don't think it matters to an extent because I think we've proved the point of the exercise, haven't we? That that if you take those 15 teams away, what you get is a kind of a much more competitive World Cup where teams that are just on the outside of the elite suddenly have a chance to compete. My instinct is that Mexico would be stronger. What's particularly fascinating about this is that um, given that you've gone through this process with um, a group of 12 teams who you think must absolutely be considered and then some also-rans, Mexico... uh, and also ran is making the final. No, that's not entirely, that isn't entirely fair on my process, Hugh. Uh, I don't know enough about the Mexican national team to guess at to, uh, you know, as, as to which players would, would start. I couldn't tell you, I've not seen a, you know, Mexico play live since the last World Cup, but purely on the, on the principle that they are basically, both them and Colombia are largely unaffected. There's an element of coin flip about it, but I, I wonder whether Mexico are less affected than Colombia are. Mexico will play in the final either Spain or Argentina. Spain. That's a, a lot easier, bearing in mind how Argentina was so tough, uh, how tough it was yeah. to put Argentina into and that. Uh, just just before we predict a Spain-Mexico World Cup final, I think we should point out that if the bracket had been different, this obviously might all have been different too. Yes, completely. And that, that is the way that is why we had to, again, pick seedings based on FIFA rankings. And there will be a huge amount of people uh, I imagine the three of us included, who um, raise an eyebrow slightly to the algorithm that provides us with the FIFA rankings anyway. Um, uh, but we have predicted a Spain-Mexico final. Uh, who will be the World Cup champions without those 375 players? Spain. Who would Spain not beat were they to meet them in the final? Is there any other of those teams, if we're not going to rely completely on the seeding that I have introduced via FIFA, thank you FIFA, um, to this bracket would anybody else have beaten Spain or would we have got there eventually anyway I think you could make a case for England head-to-head against Spain I mean maybe France as we said the great thing about this is you could you know maybe maybe if anyone wants to pick up on this they can create their own bracket with the the last 16 that we came up with and run it any different number of ways and I think you'd come up with a, a different victor on a regular basis so that's what yeah. That has been the nice thing of this uh, nice thing about this exercise. Have we had fun? Well, as long as three people have fun, that's 100% of the people who are so far involved in the podcast. So that, that, that to me is a success. If you do have anything to add, by the way, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, comments, complaints, omissions, any of those to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Obviously, Chinch isn't here today, so there's no soccer story, which if you've managed to, to listen to this at normal speed uh, throughout the course of the podcast, you'll be pleased that we're going now. Please subscribe, <laughs> share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Well, I, I, to be honest, I thought my, my research was worth it. I think, how do we do pronunciation wise? How many, how many mistakes right. do you think uh, we made? Not too many. I think, you know, you, we, we could have maybe, you know, hammed up some of the Spanish names, but I think we did all right. And I, lo- I love that Paul Alexander just throws something out on, on Twitter and this is what it's led to. Exactly, a whole like hour a, of content. A, a Twitter grenade, which we have failed to run away from. I mean, we will, we will literally take anything for content. That's the, that's the main lesson here. <laughs> if the, that universal truth that I mentioned just before we started about eventually uh, coming to bear. Well, it's that we'll do anything uh, to fill it out.